This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. It's now 376 days since Russia invaded Ukraine. We're into the second year of conflict that was expected to be over within a week uh, when the Russians launched their attack. It has been the most serious conflict we've known in Europe since the Second World War, and it continues and is likely to get more serious before it gets better. We're joined now to discuss where we are in this war by Senator Tom Clonan. Tom is a security analyst. Uh, he's seen the ugliness of war in 1995. He was deployed to South Lebanon as an officer commanding Irish troops under the United Nations uh, UNIFIL program. Tom was uh, there for one particularly ugly experience, which was an Israeli operation called Grapes of Wrath against Hezbollah, which culminated in the massacre of refugees in a village called Kana in April 1996. He's been guiding us through this uh, conflict uh, as far as military engagement goes. Tom, thank you very much for joining us. We see and read now about Bakhmut. Now, you've talked to us before about this a small town or city. Uh, I think 70,000 people was the population. There are only 4,000 left. It looks desperate. The Russians are said to have control of it. What's the significance of Bakhmut, Tom? Bakhmut is of symbolic importance to Putin and his, his regime in that if they take Bakhmut, it will represent their first victory. Um, and I use that word advisedly in, in inverted yes. commas. It'll be their first victory since Ukraine's counteroffensives, their successful counteroffensives, which began really in earnest at the end of the summer in 2022. So since then, um, in and around uh, Kharkiv, Kherson, and in in in, in the centre areas of Donbass, really um, Russian forces 
under Putin's generals have been retreating. So around about Christmas time, Putin uh, appointed uh, his general Gerasimov in charge, sacked all of his other generals, and now under under uh, Gerasimov we have them on the point of taking Bakhmut. So the reports from Bakhmut are really appalling. They, they tell a story, sim- I suppose similar to Mariupol, of you know the, the Russians completely destroying Yes, uh, a city in order to um, to take it or to capture it. So the the reports appear to show that the Ukrainian military are not they're not routed as such, but they seem to be staging a tactical withdrawal um, to the Bakhmata River, which runs north south um, and and kind of is at the the western edge of the of the of the town of Bakhmut. So they appear to be preparing to tactically withdraw to west of the, the, the banks of that river and, and take advantage of it being a, a natural obstacle to, to halt the, the, the Russian advance there. And, I mean, the descriptions of the, the, the battle repeatedly um, very, very high casualties. And we're hearing since, and I'd said this to you previously, since the 6th of February, anything between five and 800 uh, Russian and Ukrainian soldiers. Many many of the Russians reservists that were mobilized uh, late last year and are now arriving on the battlefield, between f- five and 800 of these uh, Russian reservists and Ukrainian troops have been killed on a daily basis. And it, res- it resembles the kind of trench warfare that w- we last saw in World War One or some military analysts are comparing it to the the Battle of Stalingrad, which which yes. you know this kind of holding ground, um, and so the, the, there are descriptions of uh, trench warfare, basically with the Russians using tanks, armored fighting vehicles, but more frequently, you know, large human wave infantry assaults on very well defended Ukrainian positions with massive loss of life. But eventually, the Ukrainians having to relinquish ground because they simply run out of ammunition and because of the sheer weight of numbers that are being thrown at them. So the Ukrainians describe uh, the Russians have definitely remobilized to a certain extent. I mean, I, and I know I said this to you the last time, I didn't think that the Russians would have a credible force in place. And by by saying this as well, I mean it's not. It's, I'm not signalling any support for Russia. I'm not no, cheering no. them. Up. I'm just simply describing the reports that the Ukrainians are giving. Say that they have helicopter gunships, the Russians, in the area that they're attacking the Ukrainian trenches. So they seem to enjoy a certain amount of air superiority, um, and it seems to be a more organised, not a very kinetic advance. It's it's piecemeal at huge human cost. But there are some other interesting telling reports that the Ukrainians are reporting now that they're encountering Russian T-62 tanks, that the Russian First Guards Army has been reissued with these tanks, which are 60 years old. Right. haven't been seen um, in a very, very long time. Apparently, there are 800 of them have been refitted, um, restored, reserviced, and are being pressed into use. And this signals the, the, a crisis in, in Putin's armor, in that his T-72 tanks and his more modern variants of that um, have been destroyed in such numbers in this conflict that they're now having to get back in, into these very, very old weapon systems, which are actually quite vulnerable on the battlefield. They don't have 
explosive reactive armor. And they're a, a very old kind of a platform for, for, for that direct fire weapon. And also there are reports of the old uh, BTR-50 armoured personnel carriers. And, and these are armoured personnel carriers that were first introduced in, into the Soviet military in 1954. Right. So these are weapons that are 70 years old and now being pressed into service with these uh, th- this absolutely desperate assault on Bakhmut, which is aimed at being then a launch pad for attacks further into Donetsk towards Kramatorsk. And indeed... Um, it's reported as we speak that the, the Russians are, are shelling Kramatorsk and that probably might be their, their next step or their next objective if they, if they can keep their momentum going. But they seem to be under quite considerable pressure. You know, when you see weapons of that vintage appearing on the, on the battlefield, you know that there's a problem. Yes, and I read a piece, I have it in front of me in this morning's Financial Times, uh, that suggests the Russian military are already concerned about their ability to sustain the war. Uh, One official added, guided missiles and artillery supplies are running as low as half the levels of uh, late last year. The Russians are in dire straits. They need missiles. One European official is quoted as saying. The other issue is the Iranians have been giving them drones and have other uh, missiles, but the Americans and uh, the West and NATO have warned Iran not to help Russia in that way. So the idea of Putin not having enough weapons for his army, it raises a couple of questions. One is the supply the Ukraine is getting from the West. Uh, we know they got some tanks or they have some tanks on the way, and of course they are looking for fighter jets, but they haven't been given them, but they are getting a lot of stuff. Yeah, so one of the questions that has arisen in recent days, and since we last spoke, uh, there's a renewed focus on, on Beijing and China's aid to Moscow. So we know that China have given non-lethal aid to Moscow, and despite Putin's war of aggression on Ukraine. And there is some suggestion that they might be tempted to provide lethal aid in the context of uh, Russia's um, problems with its its supply chain of weapons. And there is one report that suggests that um, a Chinese uh, aviation technology company, which is known as Xi'an Bingo Intelligent Aviation, are in negotiations to provide and supply kamikaze drones and and other dual purpose technologies um to moscow the united states have also warned that we need to keep an eye on belarus that they may act as an intermediary for the receipt and onward transit of non-lethal and lethal aid and dual purpose technologies to moscow so there's a lot of speculation about that this is a moment for china because um a lot of analysts would say this it's difficult to know how this would benefit china and um, because it depends on the EU market for so many of its products and services and supports yes. that uh, and and China has been working to to try and repair the damaged relationship between the European Union and China there's also a feeling that the chinese know that if they provide this lethal assistance to moscow that that will just simply galvanize further the 
EU US uh, unity that has been really mobilized in this in in this war quite unexpectedly on Putin's part he didn't expect this to happen but also it strengthens NATO and um the US as head of G7 have warned China um through their diplomatic channels that if they do provide lethal aid that they will use all sorts of uh, you know they'll call for international sanctions against China and their their economy is fragile at the moment yes. and they will also uh, send weapons and weapon systems to to Taiwan and um, to reinforce the and their the, you know the, and signal their renewed solidarity with Taiwan so that Taiwan doesn't become Ukraine mark 2 and all of this really it, it the, the, I think it's quite telling in the U.S. Uh, intelligence estimate. They say that if China were to supply these weapon systems and lethal aid, they use two words. They say it would escalate and prolong the war in Ukraine. So I think what's happening in the background is that the United States and her NATO allies, despite what people might think, they are preparing for what happens next. And it is believed, so they don't want a prolonged and escalated conflict. It doesn't appear to be the case that Putin is is capable of maintaining an escalated or prolonged conflict. So um, at the recent NATO meetings in Munich, um, it is reported that uh, the, the British actually um, are talking about a, a new defence pact with Ukraine that will be announced at NATO's annual meeting in July of this year, where they will give Ukraine cast iron defense guarantees, the supply of weapons, the supply of technology, possibly aircraft, I mean, but yes. falling short of full membership of NATO or even uh, partial, you know, observer status that NATO was partnership for peace. So I think, I think the NATO, and, and this has been supported by, by Germany. And by France, and these are the you know the anchor tenants of NATO in Europe, and it is also reported in the Washington Post and in the Wall Street Journal that the United States, the Biden administration, have asked uh, President Zelensky to begin to consider a negotiation yes. position on what. But absolutely, you know, Russian forces must withdraw from Ukrainian territory, and Ukraine absolutely has the inalienable right to defend itself and to dictate its own policy but they are the, the pressure is on now uh, in terms of real politic to begin to think beyond this uh, the, the the current point that that we're at Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We spoke to Lara Marlowe, the Irish Times Paris correspondent last week, and she told us about Macron, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, uh, and his opinion, which is that Putin doesn't have to be taken out or doesn't have to go. He should be, there should be negotiations to end this war. Others seem to think that given what Putin has done, and this is where the division appears to be, uh, he has got A, to lose, and B, not to have power when this conflict is over. So the politics here can get quite uh, murky, can't they? And and irreconcilable, some of the positions, because Zelensky has said, the president of Ukraine, that, that he wants everything, including Crimea, which uh, Russians have held since 2014. So the potential here, or the questions here, don't just arise around munitions and that kind of power, but also politics and very serious politics, because if NATO and Russia start fighting each other, we're into the nuclear business, aren't we? Absolutely. I think um, the, for, for the first time in this conflict, uh, well, for the first time in a long time, uh, the, the last time there was any explicit reference to negotiations um, was at the end of March in 2022, just a month after the initial invasion and war on Ukraine by Putin. And Zelensky said back then that he was prepared to negotiate, but that he fully expected those negotiations to fail because he didn't believe Putin was was genuine. And Putin has shown himself to be recidivist in breaching uh, international agreements and, and negotiated positions that he's met. But the mood music is beginning to change at the moment. You you have those reports in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and, uh, you know, reports that possibly in the July NATO meeting, there may be a, a very carefully prepared, um, what they're calling it is a, 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 a defense pact with Ukraine to guarantee its, its, in, its territorial integrity moving forward, and also accelerated membership of the European Union. Um, and it really comes down to hawks and and uh, I wouldn't even say doves, but I'd say just the real politic of what is possible at this point. The, the absolute hawks in the United States, there is a school of thought that they they believe that um, they would like to completely destroy or deplete R- Russia's military capacity and that the war in Ukraine is is one way of doing that, although that they would continue to basically 
well, they would advocate or propose constant, you know, hybrid initiatives against Russia in multiple realms to damage it and to and to disempower Russia. And also similarly with China, there there, there is a school of thought amongst the defense and intelligence community that there are people in the US defense intelligence who are saying to President Biden now, now is the time to confront China before yes. it gets because it's obviously a, a, a global economic superpower. And whilst it has developed its military uh, and invested in it very heavily and built naval bases all around the world, and they're not quite yet at the point where they're a military superpower. So there's a school of thought that now is the time um, to confront China. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there's a belief that Ukraine has the, the, the capacity to, ret- to retake the territory that that Putin has seized since February of last year. There's also a belief, and it's it's reinforced by the fact that Russia have have flooded the Dnipro Delta with their troops, that Ukraine may mount uh, an offensive designed to cut off the land corridor to Crimea, and if they achieve those aims of retaking, notwithstanding. The, the, the fall of Bakhmut, if they retake significant portions of the ground taken by Putin since last February, and they have already retaken 50% of it, that that might present uh, a, a negotiating position that might be acceptable at this point to to, to Ukraine. But really, that that's a question for, for President Zelensky and, and his government. But I think one of the things, you know, when I, when I think about these you know the real politic versus the very hawkish uh, analysis. You and I, Eamon, remember when the Berlin Wall came down? Yes. And nobody in the U.S. or NATO or European defense intelligence community, nobody predicted it. It came as a complete surprise. Yes. And what brought down the Berlin Wall and what brought about the collapse of you know the Soviet Union's hold in Central and Eastern Europe? It wasn't a missile or a tank or a weapon system. It was quite simply the prosperity of Europe and the European economic community. And that was a very powerful weapon in that it, you know, the historians say that it was the just people in Central and Eastern Europe, by simply being able to tune into TV channels, realized that there was an alternative. And I think the most powerful weapon for Ukraine going forward would be full membership of the the European Union and accelerate it. A, a huge investment program into Ukraine. Already the IMF are investing in Ukraine and, the, and, and its reconstruction already. And this would send a very, very powerful message into the oblasts that border um, Ukraine in Russia. Yes. Because Russia at the moment is, is at a very dangerous point. And I'll, I'll try and conclude on this. Russia is not the Soviet Union anymore. Even in the darkest days of the Soviet Union, they had a mechanism in Moscow for replacing their leader. Yes. Russia at the moment doesn't have that mechanism. Putin has consolidated his hold on power and he, he but so there, there are a group of about 30 people around Putin that enable and empower him. And you can be sure that lines of communication are already open to them. And I think of something like Operation Sunrise in 1945 when the Office of Strategic Services in the United States, the forerunner of the CIA, opened up negotiations with senior Nazi figures, people yes. like uh, Himmler, uh, General Karl Wolf, the, the, the Waffen-SS general in charge of all of Nazi forces in Italy, 
uh, Alan Dulles met them, had face-to-face meetings with with uh, General Wolf to basically secure a surrender of Nazi forces in Italy to save life and to try yes. and accelerate the end of the war. So you can be sure that there are behind-the-scenes negotiations. I don't think you could have a direct negotiation at this point with uh, with Putin, but who knows what's going on behind the scenes. And I would hope, and there are moves in place, that a legal or court, international court procedure will 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 come into being that will be capable of trying Vladimir Putin and his generals, Sergei Shoigu and uh, Valery Gerasimov, try them for, for war crimes, either in person or in absentia. But I, I think we need to get to the point where we're moving beyond just you know, this kind of trench warfare. I mean, that in and of yes. itself speaks for itself. We know that that is unsustainable and it it is in many respects futile because Bakhmut is an empty victory for, for, for Putin and his supporters. If it provides them with some sort of a symbolic boost at this point in the war, you know, but, but to what end? You know, I, th- I think we're going to see a, a major Ukrainian counteroffensive that will be designed to take back as much of the territory has been taken since last February and to try and cut that land corridor, um, it, you know, down around the Kherson region where the Russians are starting to uh, concentrate some forces. And I think that the Ukrainians have shown that they are ready, willing and capable of mounting such an offensive successfully. Now, Tom, you talk about the people around Putin. He has, I note, a critic, uh, a guy called Denis Nikitin. He's an extremist. He heads up the Russian Volunteer Corps. Um, you wouldn't know whose side he's on. The other guy who is critical of Putin is the head of the Wagner Group. Uh, Prigozhin is his name. The Wagner Group are people who were let out of prison, for example. They're part of the cannon fodder, aren't they, that Russia is throwing at places like Bakhmut, as well as the reservists that have been called up with no real training. Yeah, there's a, there's a number of these um, militias or so-called militias, but they're really mercenaries that have been set up. You've got Yevgeny uh, Prigozhin and the Wagner yes. Group, which he co-founded in 2014 with the initial invasion and aggression on Ukraine, which is, you know, anything up to 50,000 personnel. But you also have um, Sergei Shoigu has set up a militia called the, the Patriot Militia, Gennady Timchenko's uh, Redut Militia, uh, and you also have then another actor there, uh, che- Chechen leader Ramzan Kadyrov's army of, of Chechen ultranationalists, and yes, and and these really again undermine the the concept of the rule of law in in Russia. And within the Russian Federation, and they are absolutely uh, acting independently of any regard to the laws of armed conflict or the Geneva Conventions in Ukraine. There, and and I think when this conflict does uh, come to some sort of a conclusion, and I hope it doesn't escalate, but if it if and when it comes to some sort of a conclusion, we're going to find many multiples of of incidents of war crimes against the civilian population in, in the areas yes. that have been taken by 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 these forces you know the attempt to to russify 
um, these areas. And we also need to know more about the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian men, women and children who have been deported to to the Russian Federation during this conflict from the from these areas. And I, I would hope that in due course, when some sort of conclusion is reached, that these individuals and those organizations will also be amenable to an international criminal court. And it's in it's in Russia's interest. Like the the frightening part at the moment is that those who might be best placed to succeed uh, Vladimir Putin at the moment are, you know, possibly more extreme in their views than he is. Because yes. um, he is under pressure from what is called his right wing, the the kind of real sort of hard man. Uh, so the idea that he's the hardest of the hard isn't strictly speaking true, is it? No, and, and some of these individuals have been very openly critical, not yes. of him personally yet, but they have been very critical of the Russian military. And given that this is uh, Putin's pet project, his special military operation, and given yes. that he has appointed uh, Valery Gerasimov as, as the, the military commander in the region now, I think any criticism of the military really is a, is, is a criticism of him. And in terms of the weaponry, there's talk now of the US providing, uh, maybe being willing to provide Ukraine with missiles, uh, ballistic missiles even, that would have a range of around 300 kilometers. And, of course, the West has to walk a fine line here, doesn't it, in terms of what Zelensky is looking for, like fighter jets, and what they can allow him to have without triggering a confrontation between NATO and Russia, which is to be avoided, I assume, Tom, at all costs. Yeah, the difficult. Yeah, and and this is a difficulty. And there was um, again in the war of misinformation and disinformation. There was an allegation last week that Ukrainian forces had entered Russian territory and opened fire on school buses in the neighbouring oblasts. And you know, photographs online of alleged, uh, actually ultra right wing uh, Russian opponents of Putin's regime. Who are fighting in Ukraine, you know, to to undermine Putin? So this, yeah, against, I think that, that this fellow Denis Nikitin uh, is at the head of the Russian Volunteer Corps. Yeah, and there are some there that are claiming that this is a, a false flag operation to, you know, bolster support for um, Putin. In in that it 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 would demonstrate to Russians that they're personally at risk. That Ukraine is prepared to, um, you know, extend its aggression deep into Russia, and, and there have been attacks on on Russian infrastructure along the border, and there have been attacks in, in into Belarus. But I don't think that uh, President Zelensky has any interest whatsoever in launching attacks on on Russia proper. But some of those weapon systems, the longer range missiles, there is a risk that they could, you know, be inadvertently or otherwise uh, deployed in such a manner that they overshoot the target and, and go into to Russian territory. And yeah, well, the U.S. are reported to have um, provided $10 billion worth of weaponry to Ukraine, but the Biden administration has rebuffed Zelensky's request for what are called ATMIs, uh, tactical ballistic missiles with a range of 300 
uh, kilometers. You know about these weapons, I take it. Yeah, see, the problem is that the planning range of those weapons are such that if you deploy them into eastern Ukraine, if you deploy them east of the Dnieper River, then the Russians can not unreasonably claim that you're now threatening the, the, you know, the Rodina, the motherland itself. Now, notwithstanding the fact that they've had those uh, so-called referenda late last year declaring parts of um, Donbass, you know, the the four oblasts as parts of Russia proper. But this all comes down to, you know, what is possible based on the evidence. You know, when you see 60-year-old tanks and 70-year-old Russian armored personnel carriers arriving on the battlefield, when you hear reports of human wave infantry attacks with poorly trained reservists, in many cases, it is reported forced at gunpoint by some of these um, Wagner and other groups to, to, to run headlong into Ukrainian positions. It This isn't a war that is going to take all of Ukraine. I think, I don't think that Russia, using conventional means, can take towns like Kramatorsk and Slavyansk. I really don't think they can. But I think we could have a huge loss of life and the risk of an escalation locally. And my fear, and I've said this to you before, is that Russia has these small nuclear weapons. They're one-tenth the size of the the Hiroshima and Nagasaki devices. And they have an arsenal of about 2,000 of these devices. And the real danger with them is that they might be tempted to use such a weapon on a town. Putin might be tempted to use such a weapon on a town like Kramatorsk or Slavyansk, where Ukrainian forces are concentrated, in order to completely destroy and annihilate those pockets of resistance and to create a kind of a dead zone or a buffer zone. You know, this is horrific stuff. But unlike the big intercontinental ballistic missiles that we're all used to, that are we talk about mutually assured destruction and the inbuilt yes. deterrence contained within them, these smaller missiles... Uh, projectiles, rather, can actually be fired locally from conventional artillery pieces or conventional multi-launch rocket systems. So unlike the big intercontinental ballistic missiles, we've all seen the movies where a Russian officer on a on a submarine or somewhere in a, in a, in a big missile silo says, I'm not going to press the button, I'm not going to fire the weapon, because yes. there's such a big long chain of command. But with these small weapons, if they're pr- present in in Ukraine, in in Donbas, if they're deployed there, three or four people is all you need to fire one of those weapons. You don't need; it doesn't need a long chain of command. And I think with the presence of groups like uh, Ramzan Kadyrov's Chechen groups and Wagner, who have no respect for human life or international law, I think there's a re- there's a serious clear and present risk there. And pointing out that risk doesn't make me an appeaser of Putin or somebody who wants to reward Putin. It's just simply pointing out the hard and fast fact that this risk exists. And everybody knows this. And this is why NATO and the United States, Germany, France, Britain, this is why they're now all looking for some way to bring this thing to an end yes. in a manner that allows us all to move forward. But that has to be determined by President Zelensky and the, and the people of Ukraine. And they have been absolutely extraordinary over the last yes. year in their ability and their, their determination to defend their country and, and to turn the tide on Putin's aggression. And that's something that will protect all of our values 
going forward. A final question, Tom. If a tactical nuclear weapon, as these uh, small missiles are known, if a tactical nuclear weapon or tactical nuclear weapons are used, is NATO obliged to do what? Well, I think if if Putin and his allies, these mercenaries, were were yes. were foolish enough, desperate enough to do this, it, in, it, immediately it would be a, a, hum, a humanitarian catastrophe of proportions we haven't seen since World War Two, yes. and environmentally. It would also have a, a catastrophic implications of course, for, for, we for know Central that for Europe and, and for Chernobyl, and for, yes, and for Russia. And I think all bets would be off. Then I think that the possible escalation would then immediately follow. And you know, NATO have a playbook for this, and it would involve right. an, an absolute all-out campaign of um, destruction at, at military targets all across the. The Russian Federation, because once that genie is taken out of the bottle, then you know it it, it would embolden other states and rogue states and of rogue course, actors yeah. to to get to to obtain such weapons. It's in, it's in nobody's interests, and that would be the, and it would it would not be in China's interests. It wouldn't be in anyone's interests. So that's why the hope is that pressure, more and more pressure, would be brought to bear on not so much Putin but the people around him to you know see the writing on the wall. Ukraine has determined the facts on the ground here, not Putin, not Gerasimov or his generals. And Ukraine hopefully will be in a position to determine a an outcome which I hope will involve accelerated membership of the European Union, uh, a cast iron defence guarantee and a defence pact which doesn't involve becoming a member of NATO or having observer status. And I think that, will, that with the reconstruction and massive investment in Ukraine, that would send a very, very... That's the most powerful weapon we have against tyranny um, in, in Russia and elsewhere. Okay, Tom, we're very grateful to you for joining us. That's uh, Senator Tom Clonan, uh, a security analyst, and indeed a, a very brave man, a whistleblower, when he was uh, researching the treatment of women uh, in the Irish Army. Uh, we're grateful to Tom, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.